Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael. And this is Gabe. Today we are talking about Prohibition. And we got into this and we found a whole world of things to explore like we always do. But in this case, it was almost foolish to believe that it could actually be contained in one episode. So we've really tried hard to focus in on what we feel is the appropriate focus for Laidback Lush. Yeah. We do definitely want to revisit this and delve more into some specific subjects within the prohibition heading down the road because it, it really is actually very interesting. Yeah, and beyond just interesting, this this goes into some historical stuff. So as a, a quick disclaimer, we are trying to research and present the details of this time period. And any time that you look at real world events, it begins to shape your worldview. So we experience many relevant contexts in this research, but our intention is simply to provide more access to the information that's documented around this topic, specifically surrounding how it's affected the wine, beer, and liquor industries. We encourage you, though, to do your own research into this topic as we observe many impacts into our current state of affairs. Yeah. But we're not going to get super into that. We're just going to basically show you guys what we what we found out here. Yeah. Um, so to start out, you had a slight correction from the last episode that we put out about beer. Yeah. So in that episode, I talked about that proportion of grains that you put in before you ferment and, you know, those malts. I called it a grist bill. That is a term that is used, but it, it's actually pretty rare. The more common terms you'll hear is a malt bill or a grain bill. The grist typically refers to the mixture itself, uh, particularly after it's been milled before going into fermentation. So just a small correction from the last episode. But speaking of beer, that is actually kind of why we wanted to talk about Prohibition. We're coming up on National Beer Day. Mm -hmm. April 7th. April 7th. Next episode, we want to kind of talk about post-Prohibition, how beer came back in yeah. celebration of that. Which had a strange marriage with emergent technologies at the time that really, the way that this thing was impacted, it, it's just, it's really cool. Yeah, so that's why we're talking about prohibition, um, if it kind of maybe seems a little bit out of the blue. I, I think we mentioned that we wanted to talk about prohibition at the end of the last episode, if we I did, remember correctly. Yeah, yeah and then uh, you there there are some pressure point issues that we're going to, to again, we're not going to get super into all of this, but we, we do have some resources that we'll even give kind of a shout out. Mm -hmm. I know that you uh, you had something by Richard Cowan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so... He coined the Iron Law of Prohibition, as it's called, and it's a law that states that the more intense the law enforcement, the more potent the prohibited substance becomes. When drugs or alcoholic beverages are prohibited, they will become more potent, they will have greater variability in potency, will be adulterated with unknown or dangerous substances, and will not be produced and consumed under normal market constraints. Think regulation from government agencies like the fda to make sure that you know your chicken can't be contaminated with salmonella as easily as it would under you know unregulated conditions i'll, I'll say yeah so now that we've said prohibition about a half dozen times <laughs> i'm sure some of you who are our international friends since we now have an international viewing and we, we appreciate <laughs> you guys we are also confused yeah uh, <laughs> how how did you find us yeah. let us know if yeah. you can <laughs> yeah because I, I didn't i didn't tell any of my overseas friends yeah. that i was doing this i wasn't confident in that. 
But what was prohibition? So prohibition was a ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. This started in the 19th century as uh, local law enforcement started to really pick up on something called the women's temperance movement. You had a couple of key people like Carrie Nation who were going around and literally smashing saloons. She, with she, a hatchet. Which, with a hatchet. <laughs> look, look her up. She is the the weirdest, but like somehow coolest thing. Yeah. But anyways, so it really gained a lot of traction. And so you had something called the Maine Laws, which were there during the late 1800s. And then that ended up becoming a full-blown amendment to our Constitution, the 18th Amendment, in 1917. And then in 1920, you had the Volstead Act that was used in order to actually enforce it. Mm -hmm. Now, it was only passed, um, or it was supported, if I'm not mistaken, in 46 of the 48 states, but it did have a a supermajority. The Volstead Act, though, and how that was rolled out ended up really shaping that era between 1920 and 1933. Yeah, I would say if you aren't familiar with prohibition era and it, honestly even if you are because this is a little bit of a sidetrack yeah i was i thought i was familiar before i started doing this research yeah what you learn in school about prohibition is like i mean you learned it was bad but you don't really learn how bad yeah, it was some and, of these players are not good people yeah and so the volstead act i would say from the research i've done so far on the topic is kind of more than the 18th Amendment, the primary drive for just how bad it got. Yeah, and how it was rolled out actually started to show a lot of the intentions that some of these key players were really having. Yeah. Whereas this was a kind of push-button issue. The actual issues surrounding it that people were feeling the pressure from were not exactly what was being addressed. Yeah. Looking back, it's easy to understand why it happened, but it's Mm -hmm. also very easy to understand how it was trying to put a band-aid on a much more severe wound. So we know that the main drive that was coming against alcoholism was coming from the Protestants. Mm-hmm. Now, the Protestants were still the majority of people that were living in the U.S. You didn't have a lot of Catholics. A lot of Irish people hadn't really immigrated yet. A lot of uh, German people hadn't really immigrated yet. They were yeah. just now starting. And so the Protestants, they had this huge push-button issue as you also had media for the first time being able to reach pretty much every corner and they were laying a lot of issues at the feet of alcoholism printing press really kind of revolutionized how people got information yeah saloon culture kind of wrapped up all sorts of really bad behavior like there yeah let's let's itemize that for a second so saloon culture what was so bad about it well so you had men who were working these industrial jobs and factories and eating or drinking eight times the amount of alcohol that we yes drink today uh, just to throw that out there primarily liquor too mm-hmm. um it, i will say leading up to when prohibition actually got enacted beer was becoming more popular and liquor was actually kind of declining going more out of favor so there was mm-hmm. already kind of a trend towards less intense alcohol by volume which was also a thing that was going on in media because you had the newspapers putting out articles that would describe beer as a craft yeah whereas liquor was described as a poison yeah so you had these guys drinking copious amounts of alcohol in saloons after they got off work um a lot of them this is more my inference than stuff that's been directly stated but 
I've been around people who work hard jobs and I know what their behaviors tend to be like. Um, a lot of these industrial jobs, particularly in the 19th century, were really poor working conditions. Yeah. So they would get off work. They would go to saloons. The saloons were filled with violence, rampant alcoholism. You could um, cash your check there. You could cash your check there. Gambling was available. Gambling was available. You had a lot of political corruption as well. You had, you know, your sheriff is getting drunk with the local drunk who goes out. And then and this was another really big problem is domestic violence. A lot of these men would go who, home. Who wasn't at the saloons? Yeah. A lot of these men would, would go home and... You know, your wife is asking you why you're spending all your family's income that you need to feed your five kids or whatever on bad whiskey or, or what have bad, you. Bad whiskey, gambling, and also the only women allowed at the saloons who were working. Yeah, yeah. Uh, women of ill repute, as they would say at the mm -hmm. time. Which is not a conversation you want to have with your wife. And some of these men really didn't want to have the conversation and were willing to put violence behind it. Yeah. There was a very valid reason why people wanted these saloons gone so yeah. bad. The culture was really toxic. It was really bad. It was something that really did need to go. Yeah. Saloon culture was something that was completely corroding the ability for families to actually thrive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was actually falling on the children because the children weren't being invested in anymore. And they were probably working, too, if they were above the age of, like, six, because yeah. we didn't have child labor laws back Tiny then. hands. Yeah. They, they're great for they're great large for industrial the, yeah, parts. Yeah, equipment. <laughs> Hopefully they keep those hands past the age of 15. And that was one of the other issues, is that because of the alcoholism, you also had these very unregulated industrial jobs mm -hmm. with people who were learning industrial equipment yeah. while also drinking. And that led to a lot of severely awful industrial accidents i forget who said the quote but i ran across a quote in the research and i'm not going off of the notes for this it just popped back into my head but it was a foreigner that said it something along the lines of americans drink from morning until the next morning and that yeah. just kind of encapsulates that era of american history which People is very just... bad for you by the way you need your kidneys you need your liver yes you had all that going on and you you ended up having these groups formed as a response to it. So you had the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was fairly focused on basically just getting the family unit back together. They they wanted for men to act like breadwinners. They wanted a return to Protestant values as they saw them. And then you had the Anti-Saloon League, and they were well, the clues in the name. They really didn't like saloons. But the problem was is that they had one specific guy named Wayne Wheeler who was really backing them. Yeah, he pioneered a lot of how political activism on kind of like hot topic issues is done even to this day. Yeah, actually. It's, it's referred to in historical terms as Wheelerism, but you can see it as basically being pressure politics. So he would go to a town. Literally, he would bike there. So, you know, Wayne Wheeler wheeled to town. There has to be a song about that somewhere in history. <laughs> no, seriously. It's like, this is what I sing to my kid. You know, it was like... it was probably a saloon song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. The, just the honky-tonk piano going on in the back. <laughs> ding, just, ding, 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 ding. Oh, my God. I would I would actually love that. Um, but he, he actually was part of a farming accident. One of the farmhands got drunk and ended up stabbing him or mm -hmm. injuring him somehow. So he, he was kind of set up for this. 
But what he did was is he would go from one town to the next. And if there was any politician there that wasn't in complete support of prohibition or of passing things that were in favor of the Anti-Saloon League, he would get the paper to create articles that were basically saying, hey, you guys all basically agree with me and this guy is the problem. And so he was able to oust politician after politician, representative after representative, until eventually the representatives had no choice but to either side with the Anti-Saloon League or they were out of the job. Yeah, he really knew how to put pressure on politicians in a very effective way. And one of those effective ways was actually using the KKK as muscle. I do want to make a a slight caveat, I guess, uh, in my research. Wayne Wheeler himself wasn't quite as associated with the Klan as much as the Anti-Saloon League as as a party. He was, don't get me wrong, like Mm -hmm. he was involved with them, but not quite to the degree that his successor was. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that man's name? No, I know. I forgot to write it down. Uh, He had a successor who was much more closely tied to the Klan than he was. um, Which makes sense. Yeah, um, Yeah. but the the League as a whole did use the KKK because the KKK was very pro prohibition and they were huge like this is back when the kkk actually their membership represented 15 percent of the voting population of the united states Mm -hmm. which number shocked me when i read it because obviously you you think about american history and you of course think about some things that are are not the best things about american history yeah but you don't really get the scope of it until you're like oh my god they were 15 percent of the vote yeah and you know, in your southern states in particular, that number was higher because that's an average. Yeah, that's a national average. Yeah. And at the time, we had a huge influx of immigration, which was one of the main things that they hated. So the KKK's involvement was a little bit different than the Anti-Saloon League. It was a little and it was a lot bit different from the Protestant uh, temperance movement. Yeah. They really felt as though they were preserving some sort of U.S. identity. Mm hmm. In Protestantism, so they hated Catholics, and they were able to market that as, oh, well, they drink wine. Yeah. And they hated Germans, and they were like, oh, well, they drink beer. Yeah. And they hated the Irish because, oh, well, they drink everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> they, they drink I, whiskey. I can say that. I have red hair. I have it in my blood. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and I, I'm, I'm Scotch-Irish, too, so I and that's probably why we have this podcast, so. <laughs> uh, you know, I hadn't thought about that to this point, it, but. It was, it was in our it, blood. We, we were kind of faded, I think. <laughs> Actually, uh, an interesting thing about the Anti-Saloon League is it part of the reason why it kind of replaced the Women's Christian Temperance Union as a very big cultural force Um, and they did continue to be a cultural force but it was actually because the temperance union was a little too progressive for the time and because they wanted women's rights they wanted women's rights yeah they particularly were very focused on workers rights Mm -hmm. you know that was another very big issue at that time and to protect children yeah i don't like their prohibition stance obviously but i can't really knock them for wanting to advance women's rights and the rights of you know workers in general yeah that's one of those groups where it's just kind of like Whereas the others, I'm like, ah, I can't really find a way to redeem yeah. this at all. Not that I'm looking in some cases, but with them, it's kind of like, okay, so you laid this at the feet of of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And obviously this was an issue, but you're actually human and you seem to be looking out for people. Yeah. And they weren't closely tied to the KKK. So. And they were not closely tied. to. Well, and the other thing was, is the Anti-Saloon League, they, of course, had to get a lot more money. They were mm-hmm. a lot more organized. Yeah. 
um, because yeah, they, they got huge. They were huge, and, and part of that was probably just the ambition aspect of it, because their whole thing was we are going to change the culture yeah. by changing laws. And they actually part of how they did that was you know so you had another party called the Prohibition Party, which was another kind of temperance minded party before the Anti Saloon League, and them and the you know Christian Temperance Union were. I don't know if both of them actually did make you sign. I will not drink forms, but a oh, lot of really? these movements would make you, if you wanted to join their party, these temperance parties, they would make you sign a, a statement saying, I will not drink. The Anti-Saloon League, from what I remember, didn't make you do that. And that was another reason kind of why they were able to get so much support. Because uh, as with all things political in nature, there is a spectrum of prohibition advocates. Yeah, a lot of people didn't know what they were signing up for. Exactly. You know, there were people that just wanted to ban liquor. But we're totally fine with having beer. So by having people not sign these waivers and stuff and kind of making it more um, big tent uh, is more of a modern way of putting this for parties. But they were able to draw more people in. And again, this movement gained huge social traction as well. So that definitely helped their numbers. And they probably wouldn't have gone so big had it not been for the forerunners ahead of them. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and it got so very political because the KKK was putting out messages that were basically like, you're un-American if you drink Budweiser. Yeah. You're un-American if you drink whiskey. Mm -hmm. You're un-American if you do this. And yeah. Yeah, it was uh, all associated with immigrants. Yeah, so because they, they literally hated anybody who wasn't them. Mm -hmm. So it's <laughs> it, it's kind of interesting. Um, so all of these guys kind of came together. Uh, Wayne Wheeler kind of spearheading how it gained so much political traction. And... That's how it happened. I mean, they they were able to replace everybody who wasn't in support of this. And then all these groups ended up being kind of blindsided by the law that was passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that is something that resulted from it. So then we have the decline in popularity. So as as soon as it started to be rolled out, really, it was like 90 percent of the population that voted for it was actually violating it. <laughs> in some way or another yeah I mean, a lot of it i can't help but wonder if they had actually been more effective at writing good legislation and by good legislation i mean legislation that would have actually been effective at stopping people from drinking totally not necessarily good in that i would have supported that or do support that but because it was a ban on the sale and production and transportation not possession or consumption mm -hmm. it led to really spotty enforcement and it it led to some really creative loopholes yeah which is kind of those are the two roots that all these branches we're about to talk about kind of come from which is interesting that kind of became like a boon for the american wine seller because they were like well darn i can't buy this stuff anymore so <laughs> but i'm allowed to have it so mm -hmm. as long as I say that I got a pre-prohibition, I can have as many things in my cellar as I want. Well, and that was, um, uh, again, we're not trying to draw direct parallels to today per se, but that was something that wealthy people were able to do Yeah, at the I, time. They could, a wine cellar. they could stock up because they knew prohibition was coming. They knew most likely it'll be passed. They just stocked up their cellars and they had these massive stores of alcohol. So mm -hmm. it didn't really... Not to the way it did the lower classes in America at the time. It didn't really affect the rich quite as much. No. A, a lot of Congress actually still drank. <laughs> yeah. No, like everybody drank. Even the, the, and we'll get into this later, but even the Coast Guard, mm -hmm. which was, 
actively the <laughs> the largest force trying to go against uh, uh, rum running at the time. They were protesting prohibition the entire time. <laughs> they had a job to do, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you saw – and there was actually a lot of things that were exaggerated. So a pharmacy could actually prescribe alcohol as a treatment for something if you were having – yeah, uh, what was it? Female hysteria. That that was one thing that they would uh, prescribe for that. If you were having trouble sleeping, and I actually ended up having a, a conversation with somebody at a cigar lounge. Actually, their mother was a part of Prohibition, and you know she would talk about how great Prohibition was and how bad people were for drinking. She had a glass of wine <laughs> every night, apparently. So. That was that was fun. That guy was like 102 years old, so I, <laughs> I hope he's still with us. But that was a fun conversation. But it it's, sounds very interesting. Well, it's and it really impacted the economy really negatively, and it actually affected taxation really negatively because yeah. you no longer had taxable uh, alcohol sales, so they had to implement something else. And that was income tax, and that's why we pay. Well, we probably at this point would pay income tax anyway, but the reliance on income tax. It was a massive shift. The government got most of its money from alcohol tax yeah. pre-prohibition. And then they banned the sale, which you would think that someone would have caught this along the way. <laughs> but apparently, the again, the social climate was so highly pressured against alcohol at this point that I guess I can understand. But it still seems like very short-sighted that they no, didn't. Not to make an overtly political statement, but what's a popular issue is not necessarily something that is going to get the type of circumspect thought that you, you yeah. might want from your representation because yeah. it might just be that they feel so pressured to do a thing that they just do it without thinking how it's going to impact you yep that that is actually pretty overtly yeah <laughs> it is no but it, it's very true though and um, it's so... exactly what happened thousands of jobs were lost i mean mm -hmm. all across america you almost had beer disappear from the face of the of north america entirely yeah so let's talk about the economy a little bit so one of the rationales behind enacting prohibition is the really big activists thought that people would start spending their money on other beverages mm. or on domestic products. Which too. soda pop was now a thing, too. Yeah. So people thought that that would drive up sales. It didn't. They didn't really change at all from what I mm. researched. Because you can't really replace alcohol. It's been with us. And this is a bit of a tirade, I, I know. But alcohol, we've talked about this privately. Mm. But alcohol has been with us since we've been us basically us. since before we've been us i mean this is this is literally a a development in in evolutionary history yeah where the one of the reasons we were able to survive was because we could access resources that had been fermented by natural processes the fruit in the forest was no longer a poison <laughs> yeah because lo and behold ancient forms of us <laughs> were able to process ethanol and, and so I mean, I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably okay with alcohol. But, you know, there are people that are still leery or of it. Or you're a masochist. Yeah, or you're a masochist. Uh, but, you know, there are still people that are leery of it to this day. But it's like, you know, alcohol is really tied up with just who we are as human beings from a cultural and even social. You could even say physiological. Physiological. Yeah. And, and politically, I mean, you know, we're trying very hard not to be super political in this episode because we don't want to preach at you guys. But, you know, these topics are just bound up in political action anyway but back to the economy as you said it destroyed just the entire supply chain of 
alcohol production. And so it, the it, legal one, the legal one. Yeah. And we'll get into the crime here pretty soon. But when you think about this is something I didn't even really consider until I researched it. We think about it. It's not just the breweries, the distilleries, the vineyards that were shut down. The hospitality side of the industry also yeah. really suffered. Restaurants to this day still make most of their profit margins on the sale of alcohol. Yeah. You take out alcohol, restaurants can't really make money anymore. Mm-hmm. They, the, the profit margins are just too slim for that industry. You had this mindset that, you know, it would lead to all these different avenues of spending. But the void that was left by alcohol just can't really be filled by anything else at this point in our development, as we were just talking about. So people weren't spending the money that the argument was that they would spend it on. And so it really hurt our economy pretty bad. And again, that also hit the government from a taxation perspective. They had to figure out an income tax, that is what they decided on, how to make money to operate somehow. (laughs) Well, and it was, it's an interesting topic because you have basically this thing where you're telling a bunch of people, okay, now you have to change all of your habits. Mm-hmm. Now you have to change this entirely. You're yeah. not allowed to have this anymore, which some people, especially in those times, were using that just to get through their day. Mm-hmm. And then you're also putting economic pressure on everybody. Yeah. And so it's like economic pressure, very few means of actually dealing with the stress of that economic pressure. And then the Great Depression. And then the Great Depression. And also all these industrial jobs where people are getting injured. And, you know, you thought that the family unit was coming together, but that's not really becoming a thing. So, yeah, of course, people were going to start doing things their own way. And speaking of industrial jobs, we actually lost a lot of progress that had been made in the industrial sector, particularly around breweries and distilleries and the Mm -hmm. production of alcohol. For 13 years, you couldn't make that technology legally. Again, people were doing it. But bootleggers and stuff, as we'll get into, were using less than pristine methods to produce most of their alcohol. And this is is also an interesting topic because of course, there were some, some people groups that historically were having a real tough time of it with law enforcement. Specifically, uh, the black population was having a real tough time of it. But this was the first time that the voting majority was actually having to face law enforcement coming after them. Mm -hmm. And so this was one of those times when you had just a severe loss in faith in law enforcement. And that really culminated in a decision that we'll talk about in just a little bit here that Wayne Wheeler made and implemented. Mm -hmm. Because you had this, this whole system that was being completely hijacked you know you had actual cases some some debates and some lawsuits that were being filed that were being subverted to favor enforcement of the law optically rather than to look at the situation yeah from from the facts and to judge it in in that fashion so and one of the prime examples of this is actually what happened with rum runners Mm -hmm. so this is actually a really awesome topic because rum runners, there's a hero among them. Very, very interesting group of people. Mm-hmm. Very, let's say, nuanced yeah. <laughs> group so, of people as well. So did you take a look at the map uh, at all of where they ran from and where they went to? No, I know about the um, that strip. I forget what it was labeled between the, you know, the islands that were producing rum and yeah. the south coast of um, 
Yeah, Florida and then New York actually became part of that as well. Mm-hmm. I do know about the three mile and the subsequent twelve mile line. That was a thing. Which that's another cool topic. Actually, yeah. did you uh, you you saw about the yachts, right? The casino yachts. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what people would do is these. When I say three mile and then subsequently twelve mile, the government made it illegal up until three miles at first when prohibition. Yeah. Or the, well, the Volstead Act was, was first enacted. It was the uh, jurisdictional limit of yeah. the Coast Guard. Then. It got moved out to 12 miles because people were going out to these yachts, these rum runners. Huge billboard signs. Yeah, these rum runners yachts. Because So if you're familiar with how casinos work in certain parts of the United States now, I've actually been to a casino out near Kansas City that sits on the water because it's not legal to put the casino on the land. But you can put the casino (laughs) on the water. But it's the exact same principle. You had this... No alcohol zone right until this little demarcation right here. And if I just step over the line and have my boat and put up a nice little sign that says I have alcohol and it's a really cool yacht and, and hey, there's pretty women serving cocktails or whatever on it, why why not come out and join me yeah. and drink some alcohol? I'll grow row my boat right on out to that thing. Yeah. Lay down some money, lose money that way, spend some some money on drink, chat somebody up, yeah. come back to the beach drunk. Yeah. that's That sounds like a great time. You know, that eventually got moved up to 12 miles out. Same problem still persisted because, again, people are going to find a way to get this stuff. And a drink was named after it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's not on the list that I've made for later, but there is a, a drink called the 12 Mile from this era. It was also very dangerous. Rum runners were armed mm-hmm. for a reason. And they, they had to be, especially since once it became a market. It became a market that people competed for outside of the law. Yeah. So you actually had uh, piracy going on between rum runners, except for Mr. Bill McCoy. This is a very interesting man. I'll I'll let you tackle him because I know you have the more extensive notes on him. So William McCoy and his brother Benjamin McCoy, they were just boat builders, actually. And one of the people that they ended up running into after the prohibition started was a rum runner and had made like a thousand fifteen hundred dollars something like that which was like an annual wage that's that's a lot of money did you adjust that for inflation no if you adjust that for inflation he was making it doesn't sound like a lot in today's money he was making a lot of money for that amount of time his first one so he goes and he buys this ship that he doesn't really care about goes and makes one run so you would go down to the bahamas you would load up with whatever And then you would ship it up to Florida in New York, basically anywhere with a major drinking population and some level of organization. You would go to the jurisdictional limit and you would meet up with uh, a group of boats called contact ships. And then they would be the ones that paid you for your goods and would boat your goods ashore. So he goes and he just does it once and makes like Mm $2,800. That is huge. That's more than most fishermen make in like three years. So this is... And they started to join in. Which was a problem for them because they would have to like hide stuff because if they got their stuff discovered, then their boat would be confiscated, which for a fisherman is kind of a big deal Yeah, because you can't just go and buy a new boat. So we can come back to this, but going off this topic a little bit and back to industrialization... Mm -hmm. Prohibition really knocked the production of liquor and stuff from an industrial scale perspective. Mm -hmm. Necessity is the mother of invention. And bootleggers and rum runners 
were notoriously inventive for producing new methods of faster and more efficient transportation, as well as secret compartments, mm-hmm. all sorts of very inventive things to circumvent. Actually, even storage things. So mm-hmm. they, they uh, had a triangular method in order to sto- store the stuff inside of uh, Bill, Bill McCoy's boat, actually. Oh, which I didn't was- know that. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. He also mounted a machine gun on his primary yes, boat, fun fact. <laughs> oh, no. He he was the real McCoy, and that's where that phrase comes from. He was always on time. His stuff was always uncut, and nobody dared cheated him because he was so consistent that you, you just didn't want to damage the market value that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was actually fairly full of integrity. In fact, he became public enemy number one by 1922. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had put the Coast Guard to shame, which was partially because the Coast Guard no longer had funding. Because they no longer had, you know, taxable sales. Uh, and so he was always just either outrunning them or being, you know, outside of their jurisdiction. And they were doing steamboats. Meanwhile, his contact ships, basically, they said, well, hey, instead of uh, steam, what if we just put an airplane engine on these things? And yeah. That was the birth of this of the speedboat. speedboat yeah. They were just completely outclassing them. They had way more money than them. They had so much funding that it was like, well, hey, in about five months, we might be able to have a worse version of what they're doing now. That actually also ties into the Coast Guard in later years expanded massively from a budgetary perspective. And Mm -hmm. it's part of the reason why the Coast Guard is kind of what it is now. Yeah, they, they actually, in order to overcome Bill McCoy and that network, they ended up just increasing the number of boats that were there. And then they created a secret treaty with uh, Britain in order to actually arrest Bill McCoy. Yeah. So he was a very central figure. Huge. And he he basically became an American hero because the newspapers painted him that way. Mm -hmm. And that made other people get into the lifestyle. So unless you had anything else on Rum Runners? um... Uh, They were, well, basically they ended up being uh the main way that a lot of organized crime was getting their alcohol which Mm -hmm, was one of the reasons why the seas became so dangerous and also in one particular situation a a u.s marshal was actually sent to investigate bill mccoy he had to rescue them from the gangsters Mm -hmm. because the gangsters were they were ready to kill this guy yeah the reason i i I said that was also bootleggers and organized crime is what i was going to move on precisely so bootleggers You've heard the term, they were people that were brewing spirits. Part of the reason why spirits were able to remain intact and beer could not survive and almost went extinct, as we previously stated in the country, liquor requires a much smaller footprint to Mm -hmm. make. It can be made in smaller volumes and still retain profitability, so you don't have as much noticeability you can do it from a much smaller facility you can produce less of it and then ship it out kind of as needed whereas beer making you have to make kind of a lot of it in order to to turn a profit you did have that one loophole with the wine oh right okay so you need to talk about yeah that. uh all right so we're, we're going to come back to bootleggers so wine had a very weird thing in prohibition <laughs> era where oh, i'm losing it the primary company that was known to do this was called Vine Glow. And what they would do is sell you a thing of grape juice. Just now, a thing of grape juice, Gabe. Tell me more. So That sounds unalcoholic. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was just some cool grape juice, you know, mm-hmm. Welch's or, or whatever. Well, it was Vine Glow, not Welch's, but, <laughs> you know, uh, it was just some really delicious fruity grape juice. And That's wholesome. 
uh, you know, it wasn't pasteurized. They really wanted to keep the essence of, of the juice itself. You know, the yeast and, and whatnot was still intact. So if you've been paying attention in previous episodes, you might be thinking, wait a minute, that wine's going to start fermenting if you're not careful. Well, Gabe, did they have a way of preventing that from happening? They did. They had very specific instructions on this grape juice label to make sure step by step that it does not turn into wine. Oh, and, that's and, helpful. Yeah. So, you know, if it reaches step number three, you know, you might have an issue on your hands and oh, definitely don't let it get to step four. It's really good that they laid all this out so specifically and detailed yeah. for people to definitely not have wine being fermented in their house. That is so <laughs> great. I love that they got away with that. Well, it, but it was perfectly legal. It, there was nothing the government could do because it and was in your house. a warning label. It was in your house. It's a proper warning label. And you couldn't be arrested on possession or consumption. So, well, you know, this vine glow, darn, it just, I ignored the warning and it fermented into wine. Well, you can't arrest me for having it. There, and, there you, is, and you can't arrest me for drinking it. Yeah, it's, I have this now. Oops. Yeah. You know, I, I thought I was following the instructions very closely. Obviously, I had a misunderstanding. Which it's, it's, that's just hilarious. There's actually a news article that I ended up running across where the guy was like, they're buying grape juice and letting the Lord make it for them. Yeah. When he was talking about Mm -hmm. how ineffective that this thing was and how culture was just shifting to being outside of the law. Mm -hmm. And that's why you ended up having the bootleggers and the bootleggers. There's actually a lot uh, when I know that when I was initially educated on this topic, the whole idea of, oh, the bootleggers and bathtub gin. Mm-hmm. That was a thing that was blamed almost full stop for the subsequent deaths and and injuries that resulted. And part of it was that. Yeah, it was a very real reality. Yeah, yeah. there there was a part of it that was that, especially since, you know, you had these people and they were like, I know how to do a thing. Mm-hmm. And they weren't cleaning their equipment properly or anything like that. But the bootleggers also, as you did have some ones that were prominently starting to do stuff many of them were just home brewers yeah they also had innovations in technology too yeah and also keep in mind the sale of the equipment that was used by big production houses prior to prohibition was still able to be sold and people bought it up that's where a lot of these home brewers came from is they bought pot stills and stuff from um, you know what i I didn't even actually thought of it from that angle yeah they were able to buy it it was perfectly legal to buy this equipment a lot of um like farm like think like tractor supply company and, and that kind of business, a lot of them continue to sell these products during prohibition. They were selling stills and like, well, you don't these, know what they're using it for. Yeah. All this equipment that was for spirit making in particular and people were, yeah, I guess it was they would have per- had to perfectly legal to buy it. Uh, and so that's where the home brewer distiller kind of came from during this time and really allowed bootlegging to flourish the way it did. Obviously, you had to be very hush-hush about actually doing it, but, you know, if it's just out in your back shed and you're out in the middle of nowhere, then I mean, that's part of the reason why West Virginia is kind of known for moonshiners, you know? Not very easy to access by law enforcement and whatnot, at least not on a large scale, so yeah. Well, a lot of them weren't even selling to anybody else. They were just providing it to their town. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, they were giving it to their neighbors, or they were hosting people, and, they, you know, you just have two jugs. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of the uh, the the old Disney cartoon <laughs> type deal. Yeah. Or I shouldn't mention their name. They might hear Sue us. us. Yeah. <laughs> they might hear us. <laughs> the copyright claim is already inbound. <laughs> 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 oh gosh. I would say we're too small time for them to pay attention to. They know. But they're they so know. big. 
that it doesn't matter how small you are they'll they'll find a way oh 100 percent. but yeah no they like they were just providing it to their neighbors or you know their guests or whatever there was you know the problem still as we said of tainted alcohol and then eventually majorly tainted very intentionally tainted alcohol yeah so <laughs> hey wayne wheeler how you yeah. doing so wayne wheeler i actually I, I, you know the story better than i do i just kind of know more of the effects so, oh, gosh. so essentially so there's a different type of substance called methanol which is highly toxic yeah it causes blindness mm-hmm. and death uh, but Wayne Wheeler was the one who did this because you still had ethanol being produced in order to clean industrial parts and also was one of the main ways that you would get something going if you were a, a distiller, if you were a bootlegger. Yeah, you could get your hands on it. If you wanted to, you could get your hands on it. And so people would imbibe, even though it was awful, and they would mix it into things. But when Wayne Wheeler showed up, he's like, hey, so what we're going to do is we're going to just go ahead and put some ethanol into the or uh, some some methanol into this ethanol so that anybody who attempts to act outside of the law just dies and that's exactly what started happening people yeah. in i believe it was the thousands were being injured or dying from this and it was one of the major things that actually caused a fall in faith out of government because people were like why and then he got called out on it and he was like well it's their own fault and i do want to be very clear on this because i think it's worth stating again it wasn't just wayne wheeler wayne wheeler went to the federal government and got this enacted on a federal level yeah and then what's even i I, i'm I'm getting angry just as i did when i was researching this when people found out and threw a fit as they should have the government doubled down and did it more they put they, it's they so poisoned. crazy to think about this it's just like well how dare you do that though it's like well but you're killing people yeah they literally poisoned american civilians yeah and at this point with the whole rum runners issue they were already spying for the first time on on u.s citizens yeah if you want to thank our current you know global really at this point surveillance state it kind of started yeah. for prohibition. Well, even and Huber called prohibition the noble experiment, and it's mm-hmm. just like there's not a lot noble, not, not a lot of nobility here. Yeah, not by my standards, at no. least. No, mine not, were a little bit different. Well, and it's it's I the guess. whole like practices versus outcomes versus intentions. It's just like if your practices are killing people, mm-hmm. if you're causing injustice like with the uh the rum runners you had shipbuilders obviously that were were making these things there's a couple of cases where they would shut down a person's entire uh boat building operation because they suspected that the boats could be used for rum running they weren't even in the water yet it's just like well that's not justice that's not what a sane judge would ever put out there that's like saying oh well hey this muscle car that you're making could be used to outrun the cops at some point yeah not a thing anymore um outrunning the cops really isn't a thing right now but nah and not a thing that we would encourage also of course not yeah of course not but that was actually another thing that the bootleggers ended up doing once uh once they were actually providing to crime syndicates so as soon as you had uh alcohol no longer in sale by legitimate means well the only way to facilitate a network 
outside of the law is to be a network outside of the law. Mm-hmm. So we had the emergence of organized crime for the yeah. first time, and a lot of money was poured into it. I do want to say there's some debate among historians as to how much causation came from this period for organized crime, because organized crime has been around since before Prohibition. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would argue from the admittedly limited research I, I've done comparative to you know what some people have put into this subject i would argue this really opened the door for widespread yeah i would say that crime. it funded it yeah and it really did because because it gave who are the bootleggers going to sell to who yeah. are the runners going to sell to if it's illegal if it's illegal the uh, people who are buying mm-hmm. whether or not it's yeah. legal and who's the average person buying from it's not you know the rum runner that just showed up on the shore most likely or the bootlegger that just you know pulled up to the back of your speakeasy um it's from your couriers and the people in the shadows who Mm -hmm. have a very extensive network that they're operating and killing the people in the other networks to make sure that their network is the biggest network well you know you got to figure out a way to to kind of corner the market and that might be with a Tommy gun. Yeah. Well, if this sounds a lot like the mafia, that's because the mafia was heavily involved in yeah, this. <laughs> they, they were some of the main people that were making speakeasies. Uh, they were some of the main people that were transporting the alcohol. And they had the muscle in order to keep it. Because if you weren't being muscle to keep your supply chain running, then somebody else was going to come in who had muscle and they were going to take your supply chain. Mm-hmm. I, I know that there's that debate among historians. I wouldn't say that organized crime was started by prohibition, but I would say that it funded them because you had essentially a social utility. You had alcohol, this thing that everybody consumed, suddenly just put into the hands of anybody who was operating outside of the law. And so the organism of of organized crime, if I can call it that, was given lifeblood. Yeah. Because the most highly organized and well-integrated system is typically the one that's going to work. And... If it's outside the law, there's no regulation, there's no protections for anybody, then well, that's what gets the that's what gets the money. Yep. And it got super violent. I mean, the yeah. uptick in violence it was, bad. was huge. I mean, you had I forget what the what the recorded number of dead bodies. I think it was like close to 400 a year in Chicago. Something like that. Was was gang related. Yeah. And the most popular among those, the most well published was the Valentine's Day massacre that Al Capone did. So if you don't know, Al Capone was involved in this, and he was actually just in his 20s. Mm-hmm. He was he was a young fella. Yeah. But he actually said something pretty poignant about this time. He was like, hey, if you're telling me that I'm a criminal, when I'm simply supplying a demand, then you're calling everybody in this city who buys from me a criminal. Mm-hmm. And they're all good people. And kind of circling back a a little bit but it is still tied very heavily to the mafia aspect of corrupt cops Uh, so kind of going back to the distrust of law enforcement Mm -hmm. corruption hit just new levels in in law enforcement you had the bureau of prohibition that was set up to enforce the volstead act that ended up becoming heavily corrupted and mabel tried to 
to do what she could, the person who was kind of put in charge of rolling out the Volstead Act, but there was just not much that she could do to no, I mean, deal with the old boys club that just wanted a drink. Exactly. And, you know, you had cops on a local level that were getting paid off. Um, a lot of them were just flagrantly in speakeasies drinking openly. Yeah. Um, so that really eroded trust in law enforcement during the time. So we've now said speakeasy a lot. How would you define speakeasy? So speakeasy is a establishment that would serve food and drink and some under the table illicit substance like alcohol, perhaps, if you are familiar with the establishment. And you oh, know, alcohol, you say, but not selling alcohol, surely just a show. And that's part of the hospitality. Exactly. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it might not even be food or drink related. You know, there's some side shows. Here's a pig that you can just come look at. And um, here's a complimentary drink. Don't ask what's in the drink. But there's something in the drink. I tell you what, it is the bee's knees. And that that is real, by the way. There was a man who actually had a pig that you would go just to pay to, oh my God. You, you would pay to go see the pig and he would give you <laughs> he would give you alcohol to go see the pig. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you can just slap the pig. Just go up and slap him. Yeah. That actually might have just blown my mind. But, hey, <laughs> look at a pig. You wow. <laughs> so yeah but uh, uh it, when you think about a speakeasy you're probably thinking more about not necessarily a bar atmosphere but kind of that very casual dining it is more the front it was given yeah a lot of speakeasies had these hidden compartments and stuff like like oh, the, yeah, the like bookcases yeah and it was you typically did have to have a, a password of some sort in order yeah. to get into the ones that were attic based or mm-hmm. basement based yeah um some of them were just set up like uh soda pop stands and or or even tea shops a lot of cocktails were served in yes tea. Mm-hmm. and it or was, in, at least in tea cups in tea cups yes yes in tea cups you would and they would disguise it like uh they would disguise certain drinks to kind of imitate the color of a tea mm-hmm. or something like that but speakeasies became the thing and there were so many of them like yeah i forget how many that new york said that they had at one point but it, it was insane staggering number yeah because that's what it actually became it became a cultural thing in that day you would just go and day drink mm-hmm. like that was how you spent your time and for the first time unlike in the saloons where women weren't allowed unless they were serving or working they were there because they were there to have a good time too yeah it helped legitimize women drinking in public yeah and actually kind of women's uh women's power there so it's mm-hmm. it's kind of an interesting dynamic there where it's like Hey, so we're all doing something pretty subversive, something that's very rebellious. In, in fact, people would bring flasks with them in order to prove that they were a bad boy or yeah. that they were, <laughs> they were a bad girl to movie theaters and stuff like that. But you would get into these speakeasy atmospheres and uh, you also had the prominence of jazz there. So mm-hmm. you had people from all walks of life. You had yeah. the, the Italians were there. The Catholics were there. The Protestants were there for for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, and you had irish you had german you had you know you had black people who were there as well yeah um and you had women for the first time and they were all in the same spot because the thing that united them was no longer the things that united people in the past it was just Mm -hmm. about subverting authority yeah and having uh, a good time i do along the lines of of kind of some people might, might not call this women's progress but in terms of um women finding the ability to have a career i guess bootlegging was also something that not like a ton of women but it was well known that women were becoming bootleggers and finding like full-time 
work that they could support themselves on. So let's talk about the cocktails. Yeah. A lot of them have persisted until today. A lot of them are now modified by bartenders Mm -hmm. because they're pretty simple and not always great. And they had to be pretty simple because you needed something that you could make very quickly, Mm -hmm. which was also a little fun fact. We had ice for the first time. Yes. And that's that's actually really cool to think about. So this actually goes way back in our conversation to the printing press. Mm -hmm. Once you had national distribution of news, you actually had these huge printing presses that were taking up too they were it was too much heat Mm -hmm. so they had to invent a way to cool the rooms that they had the printing presses in that was actually the development of the first air conditioner and once they figured out how to displace heat they figured out how to make ice and so shaky shaky basically most of the drinks we're going to talk about are all accomplished by putting it inside of (laughs) Uh oh gosh why is why am I blanking on a that cocktail word? shaker a cocktail shaker with ice and shaking it shake strain serve that's yeah. at the end of like every single recipe except for the old fashioned mm-hmm. which we we actually enjoyed smoked old fashions how did you enjoy the smoked old fashioned oh, it was delicious yeah it was. I loved it <laughs> <laughs> also something to note about prohibition era cocktails in the United States yeah we'll we'll get into outside of the United States right after this but cocktails at this time that were being made mixers weren't really a too much of a thing cocktails before prohibition were more about so the old-fashioned actually is a pretty good example because the old-fashioned is primarily liquor with a little bit to accentuate it angostura bitters Mm -hmm. you express an orange peel on top of it and a little bit of water just to open up the bourbon or whatever you're using as your whiskey and a cherry so that was kind of the mindset of cocktails Outside of the U.S. and before Prohibition in the U.S. During Prohibition, speakeasies, again, it had to be quick. It had to be easy. And because a lot of the liquor being served in speakeasies was not good. It was awful. Yes, we said bootleggers weren't making completely bad alcohol necessarily, but a lot of them were making really bad alcohol. And not everybody was purchasing from the real McCoy. Yeah. Bathtub gin was a thing. Hooch was a thing. Um, Rot gut was a thing. These were very unpleasant names for very unpleasant liquors, so you need to mask those flavors for people that still want to get drunk. And how you do that is you put strong flavors in to dilute those bad flavors, particularly with sweet juice. Um, Mm -hmm. So syrups became a thing. Juices became a thing. Um, Colas were also, we mentioned soda had become a thing. Colas were also um, a popular mixing ingredient at that time as well. Because we can carbonate stuff now, guys. Yeah. So that was kind of the base for most of your cocktails and actually kind of for sure for all the ones that we were about to talk about. I do want to briefly hit when Prohibition started, we had mixologists in the country. We just said we were making cocktails Mm -hmm. up until it was enacted. A lot of them went over to Europe and continued their work and studies there. If you have ever heard of a very famous, and I would call it a seminal cocktail recipe book called the Savoy Cocktail Book, that was published in 1930. That was published by a man named Henry Craddock, who went to London in 1920 to study mixology, which is what a lot of American mixologists went to do during the prohibition era cocktails actually really progressed a lot during 
Prohibition era outside of the U.S. and really declined in the U.S. Mm. for, as we've just stated, the reasons Yeah, it hurt why. the industry. Yeah. So kind of an interesting comparison to be made about the progress of liquor outside of the United States versus what happened in the United mm. States during Prohibition era. Kind of sad, actually. But, you know, we have bourbon and whatnot now, so... I guess we've regained our spot on the global stage for (laughs) liquor. So with the speakeasies, though, you did have to have stuff that was quick. You did have to have stuff that was disguisable. Mm -hmm. That's actually one of the reasons why they even made uh, the first cocktail that I would actually mention is actually uh, Bloody Mary. It was just like, it's just some soup. Mm -hmm. It's just (laughs) some cold soup. That's all this is. It doesn't have gin or vodka in it. Yeah, definitely nothing special about this soup it's just some some spicy tomato soup exactly so that's the first one and the most simple what's your take on bloody marys i they're not my thing bloody marys i crave them i take about five sips and then i'm like (laughs) this is gross i don't want any more but thank you i i just don't really like tomatoes in general like even oh my god i didn't know yeah I, like i know people eat tomato sandwiches i find them repulsive frankly this is not a dig at anyone who likes tomatoes if you do enjoy that go ahead i was but gonna garnish our next cocktail with a tomato How i do- have to leave oh <laughs> sorry guys we have to end laid back lush as a podcast i've been michael <laughs> um, okay uh, so yeah bloody marys are not my thing they don't it's that sounds like they're not your thing so let's let's move on to some drinks let's that we do like shout out to a very good youtube channel called how to drink for, love that guy love that guy yeah he's really great he runs a whole youtube channel you can probably deduce by the name of his channel that he does cocktails and basically he is a I think former bartender, if I remember correctly, who just really enjoys talking about cocktails and whatnot. So he makes cocktails just on his YouTube channel. And he did a Prohibition episode that has all of the ones we've listed here and a few more that I didn't put in. Um, so I would definitely recommend going and giving that video. Oh, and he has a great setup. His editing uh-huh. is really good. Yeah, very high quality. It could be a television show, honestly, if you wanted to go on a network and pitch it. Oh, um, gosh. It's like Cake Boss, but for cocktails. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to put it. I would so, love that. You know, we're not Only gonna... with less fondant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're not going to go super into necessarily like uh, how these are made or... or what liquors you might want yeah. to use so check out his video on it because he goes into those things and more into the flavor profiles as well than we'll be going into yeah so first up we have the sidecar probably i would say the one that i know the most out of prohibition i don't know if that's everyone's experience but definitely probably one of the more well-known cocktails describe it to me because this is actually the one i'm least familiar with so the sidecar is two ounces of cognac which is also 60 milliliters for our not in the u.s friends orange liquor thank you again yes (laughs) orange liqueur of some kind which is one ounce or 30 milliliters fresh lemon juice another ounce or 30 milliliters you're gonna as with literally all these cocktails put that in your shaker with ice shake it strain it into a glass with a sugar rim um Mm. something i learned in the how to drink video that i did not know is apparently the original sidecars probably did not have the sugar rim that is Mm. a kind of a we were talking takes time. Well, and we were talking earlier about how a lot of cocktail makers now will edit these to make them a little more 
finessed or refined. That's mm-hmm. something that's come with time that people said, this would probably make this drink better. It's now standard, but it wasn't at the time that you'll have a salt rim on it. So then we have our Mary Pickford. The story behind the Mary Pickford is that, you know, she went to the islands and was this drink was made with Bacardi. So you are supposed to, in theory, use Bacardi if you like it. White Bacardi, two ounces, 60 milliliters. Maraschino, you just want a bar spoon of that. Do you know what a bar spoon equates to in other measurements? It's, it's a, I think it's like a, either a teaspoon or like a half a teaspoon. It's small. I, it's small. I was going to say a teaspoon would be the closest measurement. So if you don't have a bar spoon, maybe substitute I that. I used to have a bar spoon and, and then I got taken. Oh, that's really sad, actually. Yeah, it really was. People thought it was just a fancy spoon. It also has grenadine, only a quarter ounce of that or eight milliliters and pineapple juice. And you want one and a half ounces or 45 milliliters of that shaken it over ice put in a glass you have actually i'll let you do the monkey gland oh dear i, know I can't were... believe you you included this <laughs> hey it was it was in his video and it was already in my notes and so i was like hey we'll we'll keep it in here because oh, i really want to hear michael give the story behind this. so so essentially uh the monkey gland it's you need an atomizer in order to really do this efficiently um so you get an atomizer you uh do an absinthe rinse with it Obviously, we're not talking about absinthe with wormwood because that would be illegal. Uh, not necessarily. Is it not? All no. absinthe can actually have wormwood. It's just how much is the mm. is the key there. Mm. Wormwood is toxic if if you don't yeah. know, but in small enough doses, it's uh it's not lethal or even really all that damaging. So, monkey gland. What you're going to need is you're going to need an atomizer, and that atomizer is what you're going to use in order to take your absinthe and just little little spray on the glass. This is just to basically give some aromatic elements. It's barely mm-hmm. supposed to be there. Yeah. But then you throw in some grenadine, uh, about a fourth of an ounce, some orange juice, uh, one and a half ounces, and then some London dry gin. Shake that up with some ice, strain, and serve. Now, the reason it was called a monkey gland <laughs> is because of a certain surgeon who I hope never operated. Because he was... I think he did. Oh, uh, I, I don't need to I don't know, know if he did. This you know operation. what? Actually, I can't go on living without knowing whether or not he did this. So basically, this surgeon, he asserted, I'll put it, he he made an educated guess that in order to solve certain men's issues, which can happen later on in life, or if he's particularly nervous, uh, by sewing a monkey's... Well, there's no way to put this in a polite way, so I just have to say viewer's discretion advised on my next statement. He was going to take a chimpanzee's testicle and implant it into a man's scrotum. Yep. And that was the cure. Yep. I am so sorry that you had to hear it from me, but just remember that we're only ever two logical fallacies away from absolute madness. That's why I wanted Michael to tackle this one. Yeah, so that my voice would be the one associated with this. You can clip that out of context all oh, you want. You oh, have you're my the full worst. permission. You are the worst. Why would you even have me be the one to say this? No, and, it, and it's so terrible because you think about people who have to have uh, like organs replaced or anything like that. They have to be on stuff for the rest of their life in yeah. order to keep their body from rejecting it and causing sepsis. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work with a monkey. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work with monkey organs. So, yeah, it's just it's absolutely ridiculous. I need to know whether or not he actually ever did surgery 
because I need to know if somebody died horribly. Well, while you're looking at that, I'll go ahead and move yeah, on to the let's, next. Let's and we'll cycle the next. around. Uh, so the next one is actually a drink that we have been sipping on while we've been recording this that we made called the Bee's Knees. We use London Dry Gin, which is kind of what you're supposed to use. Two ounces of that, 60 milliliters, lemon juice. I did not put a measurement. What did you use for what you made for the lemon juice? Oh, it's an just ounce? a... I did, um, I did an ounce of lemon juice. Okay. An, ounce, an ounce of the <laughs> honey water mixture. Mm-hmm. And then two ounces of the London Dry Gin. Yeah, so an ounce of lemon juice. And uh, some people say make it with honey. You can't really do that. You need to make honey syrup, yeah. which is just mixing in water with honey. It's uh, a one to one ratio. Yeah. It's not anything crazy, and it's it just, too viscous on its own, and it doesn't really incorporate into the cocktail. Especially well you when you put it. it in ice. Yeah, that's it, not going to go anywhere. No, so you you do need to put some water in there, and again, you shake it over ice and you pour it in your glass, and then. We're going to finish. This one was not in How to Drinks video. He has another video on old fashions, but we did make an old fashioned, which was a very popular drink during Prohibition, but not necessarily uh, a Prohibition drink. Strictly yeah. speaking, it was around before then, but it was very popular. When And you could get it if you had the real McCoy supplying you. And if you've been to any upscale restaurant or even moderately upscale restaurant you've probably seen a million variations on old fashions they're actually some of my favorite drinks and people make fun of me for being an old man every time i order one because apparently it's an old man drink and i'm not bitter about it definitely not bitter about it but anyway so the the core recipe is two tablespoons of simple syrup one tablespoon of water two dashes about of bitters that kind of depends on what you're going for bourbon uh, you want one and a half ounces, 45 milliliters of that orange slice or peel to garnish. And then you want a maraschino cherry in there as well. Now, tonight I went ahead and did uh, a blackberry instead. It was very good. It was very good because I also made them smoked. I got some cherry wood mm-hmm. and I smoked that into the glasses and let them sit. We're probably going to be trying that again here after we're finished the episode because I want to I want to get that one right. What did you think of it? It was really good. Um, we were talking about this before the episode, so I'm not saying anything that'll offend Michael here. He uh, put the ice in before, and you can learn from this as well. He they the said ice. it was good, and then I took a sip, and I was like, mm, it's watery. Well, the flavor was still nice. It was a, a little watery. He put the ice in while the drink was smoking, and I was saying both for the dilution aspect and as the liquid itself is warmer, it's going to be more open to actually absorbing yeah. the smoke. Which is a fantastic point. Put in your ice after you smoke it, but uh, flavor-wise, I cannot complain about it. Also, I have bad news. Oh, no. Please tell me he didn't actually do it. His first official transplantation of a monkey gland into a human took place on June 12th of 1920. Oh, Lord. 1920 is just the worst year, man. Yeah. (laughs) No, and it, it was chimpanzees and baboons. Does it say how many people he did it on? I am actually having trouble reading this. This is... This is bad. Like, this is bad. I don't How is this guy able to practice? Xenotransplantation is what the practice is actually called. Oh, God. Yeah, no. Doesn't that just sound like the worst thing ever? It but, sounds like something out of Alien. Yeah. No, really. <laughs> yeah, no. It, it, the more I read about this, the more 20th century surgery and medical understanding just is astoundingly horrifying. Very glad we live in the age we live in now. Yeah. So this guy's a quack uh, and did horrible things to people and may his soul not rest in peace. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we know that not a lot of him is resting in peace. So. Yeah. 
so uh, that kind of <laughs> that kind of wraps up our drinks. Um, so speaking of of other practices that we are very happy are no longer a thing. Prohibition ended. Prohibition did end. <laughs> Prohibition actually started to get rolled back. It was rolled back on April seventh. They passed legislation that was allowing you to brew something or create something as long as it was three point two percent by weight. And the Eighteenth Amendment was repealed by the Twenty First Amendment. Uh, was it's interesting? So it wasn't a full on repeal. It, yeah, it basically just kicked it to the states. Yeah, they were yeah. like, so we're not going to enforce this anymore, and you guys can do what you want, as states. And some states did remain dry for a while oh yeah um, i think there were some places into the 60s yeah. yeah and i know even uh there are some towns even just recently i know uh i know my roommate actually was uh he was educated in a dry town they had to go a town over in order to just get a beer yeah it's funny we've said we live in virginia a million times now and i was actually just talking to my boss i work in the wine industry i don't know if i've said that on the podcast or not and my boss was actually telling me that there are Virginia ABC laws that have been on the books since 1930. If that gives you any indication on how awful our ABC laws are here in Virginia, but it, at least we can buy the stuff. <laughs> we do have the state regulated uh, ABC our selection stores. is dubious. It well, takes research. You know, I, I finally got my hands on Japanese whiskey. If you follow us on Instagram, you saw that I'm very excited about it and still enjoying it either way. It got repealed, which is it the got important repealed, part. And beer was allowed to be brewed for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then alcohol could be openly distributed, which ended up just helping everybody. Yeah. And it wasn't only just that, you know, the government recognized how bad the policy was, even though it was part of it. As I mentioned earlier, the Great Depression hit. And when you have a combination of your tax revenue is already down and you're trying to fix it with income tax. And then all of a sudden nobody has income. You have to find another tax source. Yeah. And so that was also a reason why the government was more willing to work with this during that era of the depression. Well, and they had just come out from world war one and now world war two is a thing. And mm-hmm. the other thing that, uh, you know, obviously that didn't happen until the 1940s, but you, you already had this kind of stirring up and in, inside of the great depression mm-hmm. and they were having to, to ration things. They were having to, people were very desperate, which is one of the reasons why organized crime took off as much as it did as people yeah. were out of the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the only way they could make anything. Yeah. I mean, you get a bunch of lonely, desperate guys who have no means of income who are starving and you're like, Hey, three meals a day and as much alcohol as you want. Yeah. I mean, I know what I would do. I just need to transport some bottles. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Very. Yeah. True. I can drive. So the beer at first that was allowed, it wasn't, Unless you drink exclusively like Natty Light or something, it's not really the beer that we know today, at least not the craft beer that we know today. It was 3.2%. That's by weight, uh, about 4% by volume. Mm -hmm. So it's under 5%. I think Bud Light is at 5% or 5.3% if I remember correctly. So it's lower than Bud Light. Yeah. Very weak beer. But it was it, it was a step, and, and it was it was a start of getting the industry back up. And, and it got the well. stick out of uh, legislators' butts. Yeah, you know exactly. they were finally able to sit around a table and have a beer, and finally realized that they had made a horrible mistake, mm-hmm. and they probably shouldn't have uh, done prohibition in the first place. Yep, uh, wine was also being allowed to be sold. Uh, liquor came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. It was again, it was a step, and that gets into what we want to talk about next week. We want to kind of talk about how did beer make a comeback? Yeah. Uh, and particularly, as we talked about in the last episode in our state, we have a lot of beer. Uh, we were kind of one of the first 
from what I remember, one of the one of the first craft beer towns actually and yeah. we were the first to can it we were the first to do a lot of different things mm-hmm. yeah so very excited to to talk about yeah, that and for... also like it's interesting from a cultural perspective how you had very time specific innovations very time specific thing if you've ever seen the show mad men that's kind of the uh the vein that we might end up discussing a little bit because it was very much so a consumer's market Mm-hmm. And the consumer's market was wildly impressed by the new technologies coming out. So it's it's really exciting seeing how that ended up even shaping some of the drinking habits. And that'll mm-hmm. be some of the things that we talk about in our yeah. next episode. Actually, let's let's get a little bit into that now. Um, just kind oh, of, yeah. I don't yeah, want to end on a, about that. a completely sour note. So yeah. what were some of the positive outcomes? We've already talked about a few. Women's progress in particular actually came a pretty yeah, women's, decent way. Women's suffrage was a thing. You yeah. had, uh, I mean, not to get too into these guys, but you had the flappers who were, who were coming out. Yeah. Um, so women were actually practicing independence for the first time. If you were a woman, you lived at home with your parents until you were married. Mm-hmm. And then you were married, and so you were always yeah. living with somebody. This time, it was like, no, you can be career-minded. You're moving to the city. Yeah. You are happening. And so that was one positive outcome, and also saloons. Yeah, we don't have saloons anymore. <laughs> yeah, you can't cash your check and then also gamble and also mm-hmm. have prostitution and also yeah gamble your life away all in the same spot. I would also argue that speakeasies kind of uh, – I know – bar culture isn't always great but more in like upscale bars i would say speakeasy culture particularly like the jazz club aspect of mm-hmm. speakeasy culture really kind of facilitated a more we're not drinking at the time they were drinking to get drunk for mm-hmm. the most part but it evolved more into we're here for more cultural reasons we're yeah, here to be with artistic. our friends we're here to we're here to have a good time not just to get wasted yeah which is basically what the men wanted to do at the saloons. They just wanted to get wasted after their their job was done, mm-hmm. and then once they knew that they were drunk, they didn't want to they didn't want to go home and see their wife. No, but in this case, it was you could bring here. your wife. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. bring your wife. Yeah, you know, and you both are watching a show. You're watching somebody do some stuff on a trumpet that you've never seen before. Yeah, you know, Louis Armstrong was actually really prominent during this time, mm-hmm. and he was invited all over the place. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion to be had around uh, jazz and how that kind of advanced progress for black communities. It, it wasn't perfect uh, no. in prominent clubs. Black entertainers were still not being paid for their work, even though they were the entertainment, which was kind of reprehensible. Not kind of. It was fully reprehensible. So, you know, there was there was a lot of social change in this subculture, counterculture of the speakeasy. Well, and you also had the Harlem Renaissance that mm-hmm. happened. And that yeah. was that was huge. That was when you had this shift of and this might not even be something that that we can talk about from from as much of a perspective as identifying with black communities. But as far as what it did to advance American culture, what it did in order to really help all of us. Yeah. Well, I mean, we wouldn't have had blues, rock and roll so much without jazz. And jazz. That was a, well, and then that the, was a black form of art. Yeah. Well, and then the Harlem Renaissance, that was when you first had people coming out publicly as black people going. Most of the time, the impression of black people is as a problem to be solved mm-hmm. or as, you know, in one way or another, either mm-hmm. we're the, the pitiable ones that just need everybody else's help. Mm-hmm. Or we are the problem that needs to be ousted. They're like, no, we do our own stuff. Yeah. 
we solve our own problems mm-hmm. and we have it, our own culture. We have our own culture. We yeah. have our own arts. We have our own contribution to make. And I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying it in very poor terms, but that all happened during the 1920s and early mm-hmm. 1930s. Yeah. And so as you had this kind of prominence, this visibility that was being created by speakeasies, you mm-hmm. also were having a community being capable of entering into the scene of, of contributing their value in a way that hadn't been seen before. Mm-hmm. It was just, it's impactful. It's it's something that shapes our culture today. That's really a lovely outcome. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's not all bad news with prohibition. A lot of it is bad news. I, People again, are strong through hardship. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I was researching for this episode. I was just blown away by some of the stuff I was reading about how this era of history really went down. It's kind of mind blowing that it ever happened. Oh, one other thing I want to mention. The health aspect. Mm -hmm. There was less drinking. Yeah, there was less drinking. To this day, there is overall still less drinking. So liver cirrhosis rates went down. A lot of health issues related to drinking went down. The culture around drinking is no longer, unless you're in college, I guess, or in other subcultures. Yeah, but you can only afford light beer anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, it's no longer this uh, saloon culture that's like, very hyper masculine to the point of you know being violent and disgruntled and just awful and not to not to uh diminish problems that we're we're facing today but yeah because at that point there weren't even were there laws at that point against beating your wife i mean the part of me that wants to like believe in people says that there has to have been but i don't know you know, there were some cultural shifts that ended up being very good. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the kind of subversive, we need to be doing things against the government. And then also the government having this whole, we need to be catching the people that are doing things against the government. Yeah. That was one of those outcomes that is kind of like a cultural attitude that creates some divide now. Yeah. But there were some other great things that ended up happening. And also these innovations, the speedboat, mm-hmm. faster vehicles. Yeah. Those all came out of the era of the prohibition. Muscle cars. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. So there was innovation. There's not always uh, a purely, as with all things in history, it wasn't purely negative. There were, we can look and see, okay, some things needed to change and some good things did end up happening. Yeah. And like, I was, I was thinking about it. Like a lot of these issues were kind of surrounding the issue of alcohol. They weren't implicitly caused by it, but when you had saloons and you, you had, that culture, you really did need to have some sort of solution. And maybe the upset of prohibition was just something that was enough to get people to really reevaluate. It was enough of a shakeup in order to have these positive outcomes. Well, so I guess with that said, I think that's a great way to end. I just checked the <laughs> stopwatch and we are running very far over our standard time. Oh dear. This is a big topic. This is a big topic. I'm very happy we got to talk about it. And thank you guys for listening. Yeah, so this has been Laid Back Lush. My name is Michael. I'm Gabe. Cheers. Cheers.